You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. I've anchored my soul in the haven of rest. I like that old hymn. Thank you, Aaron, for that. Let's turn in our Bibles to John 17 tonight. John chapter 17. And we will go ahead and stand. Caitlin's setting a trend here tonight. John 17. And uh, we will we'll be reading uh, uh, some part of this passage here. We'll start in, uh, in verse 1. John 17. And we spent the last few months on the subject of prayer on Wednesday nights. And tonight will be our last message in the series and, uh, and I think we'll see why I chose this tonight. Um, that it's an important prayer of the Bible, and mostly because it's prayed directly from the lips of Jesus Christ. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping that there will be something we can really glean from him tonight as he prays. It says in John 17, it says in verse 1, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Verse 5, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. Verse 6, he starts to make a transition from focusing on his own role in the kingdom and God's glory to the church's role in the kingdom and God's glory. It says in verse 6, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them." And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. So he's praying for the ones that he's going to be leaving. He's about to be crucified. He's about to leave, but he's leaving the apostles. He's leaving that first church there. And in leaving them, he starts to pray for them. And listen to the kind of things that he's praying for them. In verse 11, in the middle, it says, Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one As we are. While I was with them in the world, I I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me have I kept, or I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, speaking of Judas, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. 
They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved me, them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me. For thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. And these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that thy love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. It's the kind of chapter you could spend probably weeks dissecting and mining. I mean, so much truth here, and we don't have as, that much time tonight. Uh, but I want to hit some of the highlights, some of the things that Christ prays for the church, and we get a glimpse into what he wants for us, what he truly wants for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word. I pray that you'd help us as we look into it, that you would speak to us about the things that we need to exhibit, that we need to uh, prove in our own lives with each other uh, so that you can be most glorified in us. We thank you for the word, pray that you bless the reading of it in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated, thank you. I had a tough time trying to, to, to decide how to wrap this series up. Sometimes you get down to the end of something and, and you know it needs to be wrapped, it needs a bow kind of tied around it and and looking all nice, but I had a tough time kind of deciding how to land it tonight, and, and really that's probably a, a good symbol, because when it comes to prayer, it's not something we're ever supposed to be done doing. We're supposed to continue to pray. I, I think it's a little bit symbolic that it's hard to know how to end it, because it's an ongoing work in our lives, that we are to pray, and that we're continually ask Jesus Christ to teach us to pray. And so I, as I was trying to think about how to do this, uh, I, I thought, well, we started with the model prayer, which a lot of people will call the Lord's Prayer there in Luke 11. Uh, it, it really should be the disciples' prayer or the model prayer. But then I thought, well, let's actually end with the Lord's Prayer, which I, I've always assumed or, or thought of John 17 as the actual Lord's Prayer. Because this is a glimpse into what Jesus Christ prays for us. It's an incredible look, an incredible insight. In, in some ways, it allows us to be uh, almost a fly on the wall in a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. It's just an incredible opportunity to begin to read what he prays for, and even then in thinking that he's praying these things for us. And I don't know if you noticed it there toward the end of the chapter, uh, verse 20, where he said, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Guess who that's talking about? Well, you and me. 
Anybody that believes on the word that the apostles or the truth of the apostles, these are prayer requests that apply to us. These are the desires of Jesus Christ that, that we would exhibit these things. And uh, as I was thinking about this, I also thought, well, he was actually praying this in front of the disciples. He's praying this within earshot of his disciples. If you go back to John 16, in verse 29, just a few cha- verses before the, the beginning of this chapter, uh, this is John 16, 29. It says, His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now are we sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should, should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Then Jesus, it says, answered them, Do ye now believe? And he talks about the hour that's about to come. He's about to be crucified. Even as he's speaking these words, Judas Iscariot has gone to gather that crowd to come back to uh, the garden and arrest Jesus Christ. Um, th- this is coming right down to the end. But, but there's not a break. If you, I know the chapter break is there. But there's not a, really a break in the conversation between where the, Jesus is talking to the disciples at the end of chapter 16. And then he says in verse 1, it says, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said. So if you can imagine, they, the disciples come, they say something to Jesus. Jesus answers back. He says, the hour has come. And then he stops right there. If we're, if we're to just trust uh, what the Bible says here, he stops right there. He lifts his eyes up to heaven and he starts to pray for the disciples who are still standing or sitting around him. So and that, that's a, kind of a little bit awkward. That he's praying for them while they're listening. And I don't know, this is a good parenting technique, by the way. I'll just throw this in there. Um, the, I call them prayers of warning. You know, when, when my, our kids were little and, and you're around the table and you start to pray. And you pray things like, you know, everyone bow your head. Dear Jesus, I, I thank you for the food. Pray that you bless it to our bodies. And, and I, pray for, I pray for Lacey right now because she's playing with her cup. And I pray that you'd help her to keep her fork out of her cup right now. Lord, help her not to help her to stop standing up in her high chair. You know, like you're talking about the child, but you're praying so they can hear you. We used to do it at bedtime, too. You know, dear, dear Jesus, I pray that you'd help Jace to stay in his bed all night long tonight. <laughs> if he gets sick, I pray that you'd help him to find his own way to the bathroom. You know, those kind of things. Help him to stop kicking the wall right now before he gets in trouble. You know, you're praying but so he can hear it, but it's really for his benefit in many ways. You're praying to God, but he's listening. That really is what's happening here. Jesus Christ is having a conversation with the Father, but in some ways he's doing it for the benefit of the disciples. He wants them to hear what is his priority with the Father. And what great insight. I mean, what a gift that we have. He, and he starts the whole thing by praying for God's glory and, and that, that he has fulfilled God's glory. We're not going to look as much into that because we just don't have as much time. But it is a reminder that as we pray, we should always start with the thought of God's glory. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee. And he, said, and he goes on to say, uh, talks about eternal life and, and talks about how he's the one offering it. 
And he says in verse 4, I've glorified thee on the earth. I finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Now, Father, glorify thou me with thine own self. And he's talking about God's glory. As we pray, and I know we've already reiterated this many times, but as we pray, always on our mind, always coloring every request that we make, is God's glory first. Even our prayers should not be about us. They should be about our Father. Here's Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity. God the Son, and He is obviously first concerned with the glory of His Father. But then He transitions into the prayer for the church, the prayer for those apostles there, that first New Testament church. He says in verse 9, look at it, it says, I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. His glory is still on his, God's glory is still on Jesus Christ's mind. He, he prays that, that the, through the church that God's glory would be lifted up. And that's a scriptural prayer, if there ever was one. Ephesians 3.21 says, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. We're to glorify God as a church. That's, that's our role as a church. If we could view every interaction if we could view every activity through the lens of bringing glory to the Father, it would change how we do everything. If if I'm thinking that God's glory is my first priority and, and my first goal in every interaction, suddenly I'm not nearly as offendable as I used to be because it's not about me. It's not about my feelings. It's not about my place. It's, if I don't make it about myself, then I suddenly, I don't have to be in charge and I don't have to be in the limelight. God's glory is our purpose. And then Christ prays for five characteristics or marks. And I think these would be good to write down just to kind of uh, clarify the chapter. Five characteristics or five marks that will help us as a church to glorify God. We've already seen that God's glory should be our priority And if we're to glorify God, then I think Jesus Christ gives five very clear principles or traits that will help us to glorify God. The first one is unity. Unity. It says in verse 11, he says, Now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be as one as we are that they may be as one as we are. He says in verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Basically, I protected them. Those that thou gavest me have kept, except for Judas. Verse 13, and now I come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. But I think it's very obvious that the first request to, in order for a local church to glorify God, is that they are unified, that they have unity that they may be as one. And he says that they may be as one as we are. Uh, Is is there anything more unified? Is there any relationship more unified than God the Father and God the Son? I don't think so. I mean, they're, they're the same person. They're different personalities, but the same person. They're part of the Godhead. That's how unified we're supposed to be, folks. We are to be as unified as God the Son and God the Father. If we're saved, we're in Christ That is our unity. That is our bond. Talk about a strong unity. I was reading Galatians 3. It says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. In other words, 
uh, we all come to Jesus Christ the same way. It doesn't matter what country we're from, what language we speak, the size that we are, male, female, it doesn't matter what nationality we are. When we come to God through Jesus Christ, we are unified by our relationship in Jesus Christ. So that means that unity must be just so easy, right? Well, I think you could sense maybe the sarcasm there. No, it's not easy. That's why Jesus Christ is praying for it. If it was easy, he would have no reason to, to lift this up as a request to his father. He, he prays that the church has unity as we are. When we're working toward the same purpose, when we have as our purpose, as our goal, God's glory, it's not about us, it's about God. We find ourselves content to simply serve where we are because it's not about me. I'm just going to do the best I can where I am. It's about God, it's not about me. See, Christ was concerned that his disciples would falter without his physical presence. He was worried about it. Maybe not worried about it, but he knew it would be an issue. See, the disciples had unity issues while Jesus Christ was there. I mean, in his presence, they're saying, oh, all right, who gets to sit on the right hand? Hey, I'll sit on the right hand. You can sit on the left hand. I mean, he's, he's there. He hears the conversations. So if they're having trouble with unity before he leaves the earth, imagine then how much that they would have after he's gone. He, could, he couldn't be the physical glue there to hold them together. That's why that he gave the Holy Spirit uh, to, to help us through those things. But they would have to be unified without him physically there. A church that glorifies God is a unified church. We ought to be a unified church. If a church is characterized by, uh, by discord and bickering, it's not a church that glorifies God. It is not, therefore, a church that fulfills its purpose. If we struggle with unity, then we are not fulfilling the purpose for which Jesus Christ has placed a church here in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Do you contribute to the unity of this church? Does your spirit or your interaction with others, does it help or hinder the work of God? Our unity affects the glory that God receives. That's a pretty serious indictment. Not only that, but it also directly affects the amount of joy that we have. Look again in verse 13. He says, now I come to thee, and these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. When we are unified and together we're glorifying our Father, there's nothing more satisfying. John Piper, and I don't agree with all of his theology, but he says God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So the opposite would be true, is that we are most satisfied in God when he is most glorified in us. And we want to bring God glory, but we cannot bring God glory as a church without unity. So considering the state of our country and our world, and considering what's even happening right now with the impeachment hearings, uh, we, somebody has got to display what it means to have unity. There's no unity. There's not unity in anywhere that you look in our world. There's, there's discord and there's divisiveness and, and there's hatred and there's variance and there's all of these things that, that are exactly the opposite of the spirit of Christ and it is a terrible dis, disservice to the glory of God when the world looks around for somebody that represents unity and they can't find it in a local independent Baptist church. We ought to display unity with each other for God's glory, but also for the witness that we can be to this community. 
The second thing that Jesus Christ prays for for the church to contribute to God's glory is purity. Purity. Look at verse 14. It says, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Purity is, I would, I would say, the phrase in verse 15 where he says, but that thou shouldest keep them from evil. That's the phrase that is, is purity in my mind. To keep is to guard, it's to keep one in an existing state. So Jesus Christ, he didn't want the Christians to be kept out of the world. He doesn't say, I'm not going to bring them out of the world with me. No, they're still going to be in the world. He wanted the worldly influences, though, to be kept out of the church. So he says, the church is going to remain here. God's people are going to still be here. I'm not bringing them out, but I pray, Father, that you would keep the world out of the church. I heard Art Wilson, an old preacher, say, it's okay to have the boat in the water, but it's not okay when the water gets in the boat. And that's what he's praying about here. He's praying that we would be kept from evil, that we would remain pure. See, the word really does create, when he talks about giving his word, it creates a natural division between us and the world. The apostles had a natural wall between them and the world, that protection through the word of God. It's divisive. It puts us in opposition to the world, but it also protects us from the influence of the world. And when it's followed, if we're going to follow God's word, it will keep the church pure from evil. It's not easy to follow it all the time, but that's its purpose. You know, there's an interesting connection between these first two, unity and purity. See, modern religion has sacrificed, uh, very often they sacrifice uh, purity for the sake of unity. They, they sacrifice uh, purity of doctrine uh, for the sake of unity. And it is a, it's a movement. It's been going on for a long time. But, but there are those that would rather get along with everybody than stick to the right standards and doctrine. They would rather kind of reach across the aisle and compromise their positions and their beliefs. But if you read 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul told, he exhorted Timothy to withdraw himself from those who teach falsely. See, what, what modern religion claims as unity is really nothing close to unity. It's a shaky bond. It will be destroyed as easily as it was created. I mean, Amos 3.3, can two walk together except they be degree, uh, agreed? It's not possible. Listen, the strongest form of unity is the pure bond based on our relationship with Jesus Christ. But a doctrine must be protected as well. We cannot sacrifice our purity of doctrine or following this book to simply reach across the aisle if people don't believe in the things that we have established as our faith. A local church will never experience true unity unless it's full of pure people, righteous, holy. Is your life pure before the Lord? The things that you see, the things that you hear, the things that you say, the things that you think, one impurity affects the whole. Uh, one impurity in your life uh, affects your entire purity. You've heard one apple spoils the bunch. A little leaven, the Bible says, leaveneth the whole lump. The purity of a church is affected by one member who refuses to protect themselves from sin. Well, how? Well, we're unified. 
If we're unified, then that means that one person, if we're together locking arms and one person uh, isn't protecting themselves from impurity, then that affects everyone. May we value this church body enough to protect ourselves from evil. Because one impurity, if we're to believe a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, then that means I have a personal responsibility to make sure that before God, I am pure and I remain holy. Unity, purity. Third is sanctity. Sanctity, S-A-N-C-T-I-T-Y, if you're trying to spell it. Sanctity. See, sanctity is godliness, and the word sanctify means to cleanse or make holy or set apart. So here's the difference. If, if we were using the term purity to say keep them from evil, to keep the, the evil out, keep the sin out, keep them from purity, then sanctity would mean, or sanctify, would basically mean to take what's already there and get it out of there. So if purity means keep the water out of the boat, sanctity means get the water that's in the boat out of the boat. It's kind of the difference between prevention and intervention. And I know we have some even here that have struggled at times with an addiction. And so my question to you is, would you rather prevent someone from ever going down the road of addiction or would, you re- li- or would you rather let them get on the path to addiction and try to intervene and change it once they're already there? See, you're much better off uh, to prevent before you ever get to that point. But there are times, though, that you do have to step in. And purity is no longer there. The line has already been crossed. And you have to go in then and you have to get some sanctity going. You've got to sanctify what's there. Look at verse, uh, what he says in verse 17. Jesus Christ says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. See, there are three levels, and this is something everybody learns in Bible college, and so it's not anything that you probably haven't heard, but our lives can be defined by three stages of sanctification. There is positional sanctification, which happens when you get saved. If you're saved, you've been set apart. You've been saved from the penalty of sin. If you're saved, you don't have to worry about paying the ultimate penalty for your sin. Jesus Christ paid for it on the cross. Second, so there's positional, but second is progressive, which means that uh, I'm continually saved from the power of sin. I don't have to live in the power of sin, folks. We don't have to. If you're saved, you don't have to live under the control of sin. And then finally, the last stage of sanctification is that final or complete or perfect sanctification. And that is that one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. Someday when we go to heaven, either by death or by the rapture, when we are standing before God someday, uh, in that moment we will no longer have the presence of sin. And I can't wait till that moment. I was talking to somebody just today about the rapture and looking forward to seeing Jesus Christ. And the older that you get, the more you look forward to it. Just thankful um, that we have the promise of the rapture. There are some days that I wish it would just happen. No, someday when we stand before God and we no longer feel the weight of what what it's like to be a sinner, we don't have the presence of sin, we're going to be thinking, man, I wish I'd enjoyed this a long time ago. So sanctification is the process of continual growth by exposure to the Word of God. 
That's why Jesus Christ says, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. See, you know how you get the dirt out of your life? Constant exposure to the word of God. You know, you clean yourself up, how you stay clean, you, you, you cl- get clean, um, that you've got to constantly expose yourself to God's word. And the, if you are having trouble with, with things that you're thinking or saying or doing or, or your thought life or your attitude, it, it may, very, may, very well may be that the word of God is not, having, is not having a hearing in your life. You're not giving it a hearing. You're not giving it a, a say. You're not exposing yourself to the word of God. So my question for sanctity then is how much of a priority do you place on, on a personal growth through God's word? How much of a priority are you placing by, to allow God's word to be a part of your daily life? Well, what about your Bible reading? See, if you rarely read your Bible, the chances of you being sanctified, according to these verses, it, the chances of you being sanctified are low because sanctification comes through the exposure to truth. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. So what about your Bible reading? What about your engagement during a time right now? Are, have you struggled to keep your mind engaged? And listen, I'm not even talking about the shortcomings of the preacher. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if truth is being presented, then it is a sign of maturity that no matter how it's packaged or how enjoyable it is, if it's true that we are actively, continually working to keep our mind engaged because without exposure to truth, we can't possibly become what we're supposed to be in the image of Jesus Christ. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Are you sanctified? We, we, we right now can't enjoy the uh, disappearance of the presence of sin. But we can be growing so, so that we can be, not have to be under the power of sin. Are you sanctified? Is your life a process of growth? Or have we become sedentary? Let's allow truth to have its perfect and completing work. The fourth. The fourth here that I see is activity. You got unity purity, sanctity, and then activity. Look at verse 18. It says, As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. See, although the disciples were called out of the world, I think this is interesting. The disciples are called out of the world, but we also see that they're being sent into the world to do the work of God. In the same way that Jesus Christ was sent to represent his Father and redeem mankind, Jesus Christ is sending the disciples to represent the Father and to allow those to hear the gospel for their redemption. We should be actively about the Lord's work. How much activity is in your life for God's work? See, a church that glorifies God is an active church. And yet I believe there are probably many churches and many members that are letting a few do the work and the activity, but they're sedentary. They're allowing somebody else to keep things going. But this is a prayer for every one of the saints. This is a prayer for any member of the church that we are sent into the world. And you say, well, I'm not a preacher. I don't get paid by the church. No, there's no, there's no clarification. There's no delineation between a full-time ministry and somebody who's just a church member. This is a prayer that Christ prays for you to be sent into the world. We should all be active in the work of the gospel. 
The importance of activity, I, I think about when astronauts uh, return from space, and when, when they've been in outer space, what happens? They come and they're weak because their muscles atrophy so quickly in space, and they, they don't have strength, and they can hardly stand. Because the body gets used to no gravity, it becomes inactive. And the muscles, when they come back, they weaken quickly. We must stay active or we lose strength. Isn't that true? And you, I know you've, if you exercise or if you've been sitting for a long time, and sometimes I'll sit at my desk and don't even realize I've been sitting there for so long just studying, and I stand up and I, I mean, my, my legs are stiff. and I, can, I mean, it takes me a minute just to kind of get the blood flow going again because I've been sitting there so long. Well, sometimes that's a, that's a picture of many spiritual lives. They've been sitting so long, and they've been sedentary, and they have, they have resources, and they have energy, and they have talents to be active in God's work, but they just sit. And the longer you sit, the less effective you can be in the work. I'm just telling you, or asking you tonight to consider how active are you? Is there activity? I mean, he's, this is stuff that applies to every one of us. Our work at Eastside Baptist Church in Sioux Falls in 2019 is the same work as Jerusalem Baptist Church. That's not really what it was called, but I'm just for sake of illustration. You know, Jerusalem Baptist Church in 33 AD and Eastside Baptist Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, 2019. You know, we have the same purpose. We're doing the same thing they were supposed to do. Except I have a feeling that if you were to look at that church at that time, there's a lot more activity than there are in many independent Baptist churches in our country today. And I pray that we never get to the point where we're just kind of a social club. We just kind of come because, you know, we give and it appeases our conscience. No, no, we are to be active servants. That's, that's Christ's prayer for the church. So how active are you in this local church? A church that glorifies God is active and outreach and inviting and, and serving and helping where needed in work days. We should be active. The, the fifth and final trait is charity. Unity, purity, sanctity, activity, and charity. Look at verse 22. It says, And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. That word perfect means complete. It doesn't mean without sin. It says, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. So you see, Jesus Christ is talking about love. Look at verse 25. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. So in the end, the final trait that Jesus Christ prays for his church to bring glory to, the, to God is charity. Agape love. It means to love, and, and we've talked about this in 1 John, to love in a social or moral sense without regard to merit. It's unconditional love. I mean, think about this. God is a perfect being, and I am a sinner, yet he loves me unconditionally. God loves me unconditionally. And it's not just me. God loves you unconditionally. He loves you without, without any benefit to him. 
He loves you unconditionally. He loves you. Uh, he looks beyond all of your sin and still loves you. And how can we ever get over that? I don't know. I mean, he, and then he said, says that he sheds his love abroad in our heart to give us the ability to love others the way that he's loved us. But sometimes it can be hard. That's why Jesus Christ has to pray for it. Because sometimes it's hard to love other people, isn't it? Well, maybe just for me, it's not always easy, is it? It's, it's just not. And it's hard to show love like we should sometimes. But how many in here, though, are worthy of unconditional love? Are you worthy of unconditional love? Well, as a sinner, I would have to say that no, I'm not. When it comes to God loving me, I didn't do anything to deserve it. I am not worthy of his unconditional love, and yet he still loves me. And so we are then commanded to love others with that same charity. And we say, well, they're not worthy of it. Okay, well, neither are you. And neither am I. None of us deserve the unconditional love or charity of God. And so we, therefore, can't turn around and apply a different standard to other people. When we've been the benefactors of unconditional, incredible, mind-blowing love, then we should apply, I know it's hard, but we should apply a passage like 1 Corinthians 13 that talks about true charity. And it talks about charity as the defining mark of the New Testament church. And listen, we can have the best preaching and we can have the most faith and we can give our goods to feed the poor. These are all from 1 Corinthians 13. And we could die for our faith even. But you realize that 1 Corinthians 13 said it would be for nothing if we didn't have agape love, charity. So the question tonight is, how much charity do you show to others on a regular basis? Is God being glorified through the charity that we show? What's the last act of true charity you showed to someone outside of your family? Without charity, our church will not bring glory to God, the glory to God that we're meant to. So the question tonight, after reading what Christ prayed for his church, is this. Is our church glorifying God? How do we know? Well, how, how are we doing in these areas? How is our unity, church? Are, are, you, are we as one? Are we getting along with the other members of the local church? Because the standard is to be as one as God the Father and God the Son. How are we doing in our purity? Are we maintaining our lives to be clean before God? Or are we taking steps to be protected to keep the evil out. How about sanctity? Is the word of God, are you exposing yourself to the word of God enough to produce growth in your life? Is it changing you from what you were to what you should be? Or have you stagnated? How about activity? Are you letting others in the church do the work? It's God's will that 100% of the members of Eastside Baptist Church uh, would get active about the work of the ministry. What roles are you playing? Then finally, charity. Do you show love to others that like God loved you? Selflessly, sacrificially, without hesitation, without limitation in time and resources. If you ever wondered the most important things that we should strive for, I would say that we could go to John 17 and see what Christ prayed for us to have and think this is probably a pretty good place to start in us glorifying our Father. How are you doing in the areas? Because failure to display these marks that Christ is praying for means that his prayer for you goes unanswered. But a desire to display them means his prayers have had an effect. 
And it's just our obedience, our choice to obey, that makes the difference. And I want to close with this thought, and then we'll be done. Christ believed in prayer enough to pray. And he obviously knew or knows it makes a difference, and he knew it could make a difference in us in 2019. So if he believed in prayer this much as the Son of God, then how effectively and consistently and fervently are we praying If the Son of God prayed for us, then we ought to pray. And I'm praying tonight that we would see the importance of prayer through the whole series. It's not religious exercise. It affects change, both in us and in God and in others as we see Jesus Christ pray. I appreciate the attention to the series on prayer, and I hope it does make a difference. I know for me... It's been something I needed, and I hope for our church it would be something that would allow us to take a step in our prayer as we continue in our growth of faith. Well, this time we're going to go to prayer, and you can pray as in response to the message tonight, if the Lord has so spoken to you. Or you can pray, don't forget to pray for the Ruckmans and their organization service, and that the Lord will continue to bless. And then you also have a prayer list that you can pray through that as well. We're going to take some time. And close in prayer as a church family. And then when we're done, everyone's pretty much done, I'll pray publicly and then we'll be dismissed. Let's go to prayer. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.